I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as we make our way uh, through this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, who were uh, uh, embroiled in many controversies, who had many problems uh, going on at the time. We come to chapter 4, and I'd like to uh, begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 7. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, so that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude. For all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, I need not remind you that the church in Corinth was horribly divided amongst itself. And the center of that division was the way in which they were taking various ministers of the gospel, whether it be Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and they were, they were turning them into many celebrities and giving exclusive loyalty to one or the other, and then quarreling amongst themselves about who had the better leader. And Paul is having to write to them to correct their distorted view that the Corinthians had of the ministers of the gospel. Now, as tragic as this was for the church in Corinth, the fact that it was divided, and as much of a headache as it must have been for the apostle Paul to have to correct these abuses. It's actually a benefit for us because it forced Paul to sit down and write perhaps the clearest explanation of what the Christian minister and Christian ministry should look like. And so, as Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 10, these things were written down for our sake so that we might learn how how to have a, a, a good, healthy view of the Christian minister Either to, and to avoid the extremes of either having too high of a view, setting the minister up on a pedestal, or too low of a view, uh, despising him and judging him. 
And so Paul is correcting this misunderstanding. He's already explained that the ministers of the gospel are not professional rhetoricians to be idolized and exclusively followed, much like the sophists of Paul's day. But they were fellow laborers, complementing each other's work. In fact, as Paul said at the end of chapter 3, all of the ministers of the gospel are a gift given to the whole church for the building up of the body of Christ. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. And here he echoes what he teaches in in Ephesians chapter 4, that the risen Christ showers apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers upon the church for the building up of the body of Christ. And so Paul, in using these metaphors to explain the true role of the Christian minister, you may recall he talked about them uh, as co-laborers working in God's field. And so he uses an agricultural metaphor. And then he switches metaphors and speaks of himself as a master builder, an architect, laying a foundation. And other ministers are building upon that foundation, using the metaphor of a temple construction. Well, to those metaphors of farming and construction, he adds one more metaphor in our passage today, that is of the household steward. And so he says in verse 1, this is how somebody should regard us, as servants of Christ. Now he's already referred to himself and Apollos as servants back in chapter 3, verse 5. But this is a different Greek word. And in the context there in chapter 3, that word was meant to, uh, to convey the idea that they were co-laborers working in God's field. So think of like a day laborer or uh, somebody working in an agricultural realm. Whereas here, the context is clearly that of a household servant. This is the same word that the author to the Hebrews uses to describe Moses as a faithful servant in the household of God. And whereas Moses was a faithful servant in the household, Christ is the son of the house. And so Paul, uh, once again, uses this term and applies it to himself. But it's important to note that although Paul, once again, uses this lowly term, referring to himself as a servant, notice that he does not say that he is their servant, but rather, he is the servant of Christ. And so, in other words, Paul's reminding his audience that he is, he is supposed to serve. And, in fact, indirectly he's serving the Corinthians, but the, at the end of the day, he has one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, clearly, Paul was not living up to the expectations of many of those who were in Corinth. Think of those who maybe favored Apollos over him because he might have been more eloquent in his preaching. Clearly, they found much lacking in Paul's eloquence and rhetoric as he speaks of the manner in which he had preached to them in fear and trembling uh, and, and not using eloquent words of human wisdom. But Paul reminds his audience that he does not serve at their behest. Rather, he serves at the Lord's. And this reminds us of Paul's original calling. In the book of Acts, we read of of him recounting the time in which the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul, or as he was known at that time, Saul of Tarsus. On the road to Damascus, the risen Lord appeared to him, and he commissioned him to be an apostle 
The Lord Jesus said to him, Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen. It's the same Greek word that that Paul uses there as he uses here to describe his role. He's serving the Lord. And ever since that day, the Apostle Paul was consumed with obeying his Lord, despite the cost. He was not there to please man. He was not there to tickle the ears of the audience of his audience, but he was there to proclaim the word of the Lord and to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. And to this idea of being a servant, he adds this other uh, shade of meaning, that is, he is a steward of the mystery of God. And, and here this word steward refers to a household manager. You see, in the ancient world, there were people who were very wealthy who would have these palatial estates. And, and the people who would live on the estate wasn't just the immediate family, the, the man's wife and children, but perhaps extended relatives and servants. It would be a whole compound. And rather than having to deal with all of the day-in and day-out details... Oftentimes, the rich patron would hire a household steward who, although he didn't own any of the house, he was in charge of the whole operation. Just think of Joseph in Potiphar's house uh, as, as he ran the whole show and he told Potiphar's wife, look, he hasn't kept anything from me except you because you are his wife. And so here, likewise, the Apostle Paul uses this metaphor of the ministers of the gospel as stewards, not of a house, but rather of the mysteries of God. Now, what on earth does Paul mean when he speaks of the mysteries of God? Paul will often use this phrase. He's already used it um, a handful of times in this letter to the Corinthians, whether singular, mystery, or plural, mysteries. The apostle Paul, whenever he uses that term, He's referring to something that was formerly concealed, but now has been revealed. Great place to go to see this is at the very end of the book of Romans, where Paul has a doxology to God. And then he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Did you catch that part in the middle? The mystery that had been long kept secret has now been disclosed and has been made known to all nations through the preaching of the gospel. In other words, the mystery should not be mysterious. It is not some kind of secret or hidden thing, but rather it is something that is now being made revealed and manifest, being preached from the rooftops to any and all who will hear. You see, this mystery is the secret and hidden wisdom that Paul referred to back in chapter 2 that has been revealed in the message of the cross and is embraced by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the mystery is the content of the gospel. So whenever Paul uses that term mystery, just think the gospel. It's been revealed. It's been uh, concealed in the Old Testament, but now revealed in 
than new. And so, in other words, what Paul is saying here is that he, as a steward of the mysteries of God, has been entrusted with the management of the proclamation of this message of the gospel. That's why we speak of the preaching of the word as the primary means of grace. You may not be aware of it, but you are currently receiving grace through your ears right now. As the word of God is proclaimed, even though it's proclaimed through a sinful, fallible human being, if it is God's word that's being proclaimed, we confess it is the very word of God itself. And it is grace that is being proclaimed to you. That's why we speak of the means of grace through the preaching of the word. And the, the, the apostles, and now in the present day, the ministers of the word are stewards of, that, of the mysteries. They're stewards of the means of grace as they proclaim that truth. Now, you may ask, well, wait a minute, doesn't the gospel belong to the whole church? Isn't every believer supposed to know, understand, and even share the gospel as they are able? Well, of course. As Paul says at the end of chapter 3, all things are yours. And certainly, knowledge of the mysteries of the gospel is part of that. But I think what Paul is conveying here is the idea that the official proclamation of that message is entrusted to preachers. The primary and official means of grace is conveyed through the steward, the the preacher of the word of God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how then will they call on him uh, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so, according to Paul's logic there in Romans chapter 10, it is impossible for somebody to even have faith in Jesus Christ unless the word of God has been preached to them with a preacher that has been sent, commissioned, and, uh, and, and sent to them to proclaim that truth. And so, there's, there's an there's in-between. There's somebody uh, through whom Christ uses to create faith in the hearts of the listeners. That's what the steward does. And so Paul talks about this, and and even in this letter to the Corinthians, he explains this process whereby Paul receives a message, and then that message is proclaimed to the Corinthians wherein they receive it. For example, chapter 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, right? Or chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. You see how Paul is speaking of himself as that messenger, uh, as the steward of the mystery of God, the one that, to whom Christ has entrusted this, this message, and he has now proclaimed it to his audience. And so here we have this proper understanding of the minister of the gospel. They're not the owners of the message. They're not the ones who come up with the message. Uh, They're they're not the ones who add to the message. No, they are the ones who take that message and faithfully proclaim it to the audience. Well, that is a great and amazing privilege that God would use this seemingly foolish means of communication in order to proclaim and, and, and convey grace to the hearts of the listeners. Well, indeed, with great privilege, 
there is great responsibility. And that's why the Apostle Paul in verse 2 goes on to say, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Indeed, faithfulness is required for all who are called to this high and holy task. A faithful steward of the gospel, in other words, preaches the word, the whole word, and only but the word, in season and out of season, without altering the message to please the itching ears of the audience. And so, and all the while, not drawing attention to himself, but giving glory to God. That's why Paul recounts the the way in which he proclaimed the gospel to them. He says, I did not come to you proclaiming the, the, the testimony, or as some manuscripts have, the mystery of God, with lofty speech or wisdom. And he goes on to say, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The the pure and simple uh, preaching of the gospel is what what the Holy Spirit uses to create faith, to create new life in the hearts of the listeners. So the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Corinthians who had already passed judgment on him, As I said, many in Corinth were were not satisfied with Paul's preaching style. They were not pleased with this message of the cross that he kept proclaiming. Uh, And and so they had judged him. And yet Paul, reminding them, look, I'm not your servant. I'm the servant of the Lord. I am a steward of the mystery of God who who needs to be faithful to the one who called me, to the master. He goes on to say in verse 3, it is a very small thing. For me to be judged by you. You see, the Corinthians had already passed judgment on Paul, but at the end of the day, he could care less what they thought about him or his preaching style. As a matter of fact, he can care less what anyone thought of him. The only person that he's concerned about, the only person that he wants to please is the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 4, I don't even judge myself. It's important to note that Paul's not denying healthy self-evaluation or a a healthy analysis of the effectiveness of his ministry. Surely, he constantly would examine himself and constantly make sure that he was laying that one foundation, the only foundation that can be laid. But here, he's reminding his audience that the only standard and the only one who will judge him is the Lord Jesus Christ. Although he himself was not personally aware of any shortcomings in his labor, I'm sure he could say to the Corinthians what he said to those in Ephesus, that he did not shrink from proclaiming the whole counsel of God to them. Even though he was not personally aware of any shortcomings in his ministry, he acknowledges that only God gives final approval. He can't justify himself. He can't declare himself as the faithful servant. He was looking forward to the day in which the Lord would come and he would, he would look at the Apostle Paul and he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the commendation that the Apostle Paul was striving for. That's what he was pressing for. Not the, not the commendation of the Corinthians or anyone else, even himself. He was looking to please his Lord. And he speaks about that day in which the Lord will come, the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and he will reveal the true intent and purpose 
of the heart of each and every person who labored on behalf of the gospel, who worked in the church, and he will show and bring to light their true intentions. This echoes that warning that he had in chapter 3 where he said, let each one who's building upon the foundation, let each one be careful, be, uh, watch out to see what type of material they're using to build the church. Because at the end of the day, it will all be tested by fire. If you used precious metals like gold and silver and, and precious jewels, it will remain. But if you use wood, hay, and stubble, it will be burned up. Let each take care to see what type of material you're using to build upon the foundation of the church. And then Paul shifts in verse 6, and he explains his methodology, why he's speaking to the Corinthians this way. He says in verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos. And we might ask, well, what is he talking about? What, what are these things that he's applied to himself? Well, I think it's perhaps these metaphors that he has been employing, that of a farmer or builder or steward. He's been applying all those metaphors to he and Apollos, not so much because he was the, the, his main concern. As he said, I don't even judge myself. Or even Apollos, he's out of the picture. But really, Paul's true target, as he speaks of these metaphors for the minister of the word, his true audience are the current leaders at the church in Corinth. Those ones who are building upon Paul's foundation, whom he has already warned, watch out to see what type of materials you're building. Uh, or, or the one, those who he refers to at the end of verse 5, that each one who will receive his commendation, whose true motives will be revealed at the last day. That's Paul's real audience. This is the one that Paul is uh, speaking to as he is, uh, as he's addressing, as he's applying these metaphors to himself and Apollos. And he sets he and Apollos up as examples of faithful ministers. Examples of faithful stewards of the mysteries of God who are laying and building upon the one foundation of Jesus Christ. He says, so that you can learn from us. You can learn from us. Now, what is it in particular that Paul wants to convey that he wants his audience to learn from he and Apollos? Well, it is there in verse 6. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now, this phrase has puzzled many commentators, and there has been uh, scores of different types of interpretations to see what on earth Paul's talking about when he says not to go beyond what is written. There's even uh, some people who suggest that this wasn't part of the, the letter originally, and somebody accidentally wrote this, and it accidentally got included into the manuscript. Well, we, there's no manuscripts to base that upon. There's no evidence to have that uh, claim. But I think it's quite simple what Paul's getting at. When he's referring to not go beyond anything that is written, I think his meaning is clear. He's talking about the scriptures. He's talking about the scriptures which had been entrusted to him as a steward of the mysteries of God. You see, the Apostle Paul has already quoted five times from the Old Testament in the first three chapters alone. And he will go on to quote directly from the Old Testament, 17 times in this letter to the Corinthians. 
And each and every time he introduces a direct quotation from Scripture, he says, For it is written. For it is written. Referring specifically to the Old Testament, which during the time of the writing of the New Testament was the church's Scriptures. So the Apostle Paul says, You should learn from me not to go beyond anything that is written in the Word of God. It's important to note that even for the Apostle Paul, the one who bore the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even for him, everything that was said had to be said in accordance with the Scriptures. Think about how he summarizes the Gospel in chapter 15, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Everything is in accordance with the Scriptures. For it is written, for it is written, for it is written. He is proving everything he says with the Word of God. Even as he is continuing to write the Word of God. From our reading of the law today, chapter 10, these things were written for our example. You see, this proves the the, the notion uh, of one of the the solas of the Reformation, namely sola scriptura, which we confess that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. You see, we believe that, that God's Word has been once and for all delivered to us through the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we should learn from the example of the Apostle Paul and from Apollos not to go beyond anything that is written. We confess that this is the only rule for faith and life. And whenever we try to add to that, it results in this. As the Apostle Paul says, that you may not be puffed up. That you may not be puffed up. This is an interesting word that the Apostle Paul uses. He actually uses it quite a bit in this letter alone. Uh, I think he'll use it at least five more times uh, to the Corinthians. And, and boys and girls, when I think of this idea of, of uh, Paul saying you shouldn't be puffed up, I think about a bullfrog. You watch a bullfrog, and they're really small, but then they breathe in all this air, and they get puffed up to make themselves appear bigger than they really are. But at the end of the day, they're just full of hot air. There's no substance there. And that's the same idea that the Apostle Paul's conveying here when he says you shouldn't be puffed up. In other words, you shouldn't be arrogant. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You see, by trying to mix human wisdom with the gospel, by adding to the content of the gospel, by trying to use human eloquence and rhetoric in the communication of the gospel to, make, to sugarcoat it, to, to make it more palatable for the audience, or to please their itching ears, ultimately, the Corinthians were going beyond the clear teaching of Scripture. As Paul has already quoted, At least four times from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah, from the book of Jeremiah, from the book of Job, and Psalms, which all condemn human pride and human boasting. 
That at the end of the day, the wisdom of the world is folly with God. Why would you even try to mix that together? Do not go beyond what is written. And it's interesting. As the Apostle Paul speaks about the Corinthians being puffed up, they're arrogant. Notice what it's coming from is that they are favoring one against another. So in the very fact that, that some of them were claiming, I follow Paul, and others were saying, I follow Apollos, and others were saying, I follow Cephas, although it seemed as if they were putting those men up on pedestals. In fact, they were puffing themselves up. It's sort of a false humility, which actually is a true arrogance, as they presume to sit in judgment over the Apostle Paul. I don't like the way he preaches. I don't like his methodology. I don't like he ta- how, the way how he talks about the cross all the time. They were being arrogant. They were being puffed up. They were adding to the scriptures by trying to mix human wisdom with the pure and simple preaching of the word. So then Paul takes a very direct tone with his audience. And he'll continue with this very stern, direct tone uh, for the rest of the chapter, which, Lord willing, we'll be, be able to look at next week. But he has these very, uh, very important questions. As he says in verse 7, who sees anything different in you? In other words, what makes you so special? What makes you so special? Well, the clear answer is nothing. What do you have that you did not receive? Remember how he talked about how, the, how the, the mysteries of God were conveyed to them? That ultimately it was, it was from the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul that they received the revelation of the mysteries of God. That they received faith and knowledge in the, in the gospel. And so Paul reminds them that salvation is all of grace. That they have nothing that they did not receive. You see, they, they were able to be, to be made known the power and wisdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. God, by his spirit, he's already re- reminded them, had begun to reveal to them the glories which he had prepared for them. And all of this was a free gift of grace. And so Paul says, look, there's nothing you have that you didn't receive. And if it's all of grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. As Paul tells us in Romans 11, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. And as soon as as you mix one ounce of your own human wisdom, one ounce of your own works, one ounce of something that you can say, yep, that was mine, I added that part. It's no longer grace. So Paul says, so then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Also in Romans chapter 3, Paul says in speaking about this righteousness which has been revealed apart from the law, Paul asks the question, well, what becomes of our boasting? Don't we get to do a little bit of boasting? Don't we get to pat ourselves on the back just a little bit? Paul says no. Boasting is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? Well, no, law of works commends boasting, right? You did it. Now, congratulate yourself. Paul says, no, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified apart from the works of the law. And if we're justified apart from the works of the law, then there's no boasting in and of ourselves because we've we've received all of it 
as a gift, as, as a gift from God. And so let us learn from Paul's example here to have a healthy estimation of the minister of the gospel. That God is using the preaching of the word to give us grace. We receive grace even with our ears. And let us have humility as we receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Amen?